Colossians 1, 24. So, to catch up where we were from last week and the week before, we're continuing in our glory, uh, glory to God in the church series. And we're pursuing the glory of God as the church um, in his purpose, practice, participation, and protection, the sheet that we had a couple weeks ago. Um, how do we do that? We, we're, uh, we're looking at the different aspects of <clears throat> our members meeting, the headings. And we're starting, we started last week by looking at why discipleship? What's discipleship? If it's that important that we've got to talk about it, what is it? Uh, we need to be informed <clears throat> and in pursuit of it. And so this week we'll finish up discipleship. Lord willing, next week... We will pick up ministry and mission, which is the next paragraph. So if this is something that, that that's important for the church, we got to make sure we're all on the same page. And that's what we started doing last week. So discipleship. Anybody want to remind me what discipleship is, what we talked about last week? If you got it with you or we need a refresher. Trying to keep it simple, even maybe even a little redundant, but that's okay. Following, learning, and imitating Jesus Christ. Now we we went through the whole first page last week. This is sort of just a rehash. Ultimately, what's the goal of discipleship? If you're following, learning, and imitating Christ, what's going to happen? You're going to give glory, or you're going to glorify God. That will ultimately. Uh, be the goal but we know that there are things that are happening outside of that not necessarily outside of that but secondary things primary and secondary things here's our worksheet does anybody remember um a primary the primary outcome of discipleship what did we have christ exalted christ exalted if Christ is exalted, God is glorified, right? So if we're tr- if we're imitating, learning, and following Christ, we are exalting Him. Think about it in the realm of sports. If you want to be like Mike, what are you doing? You're exalting Mike, right? Michael Jordan. That one's about outdated. That one's about outdated. Okay, um, secondary outcomes. What, what are some of the secondary outcomes? I think we had five. Come on, I know you wrote them down. Increase of knowledge. Increase of knowledge, right. Knowledge of what? God, gospel, ourselves. And, and a result, uh, 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 an effect that would take place because of that is a, an increase in worship. You cannot, the, the more you know, the greater your theology, the greater your doxology. Um. Number two, increase of love, love for Christ and love for others. Number three, increase of joy and hope, but or joy and peace, but not just any joy and peace, but the joy and peace of Christ. Remember, he says, I give you my joy to his disciples. I give you my peace. So as we follow, learn, and imitate Christ, our joy in Christ and peace in Christ will increase. And ultimately that increases our hope in Christ. Number four, what do we got? Number four. 
Increase of witness and defense. Increase of witness and defense uh, or an apology, an apology, an apologist, apology for our faith. If we are becoming and looking more like Christ, people are going to say, hey, what's going on with you? Right. So as we get as we follow Christ closer, become more like him, it's going to be obvious to people around us. And five, which is sort of a trick, tricky one. An increase of holiness. And remember, I said, ultimately, discipleship is the pursuit of holiness. That's the old way. The old way the church used to think about it. Discipleship, that word is just more of a, a modern term as disciples being disciples. But really, a disciple is in pursuit of holiness. That's probably, more, that's probably better New Testament language. But we get the point. Um all right, so now we we left off at the bottom of the first page last week, and I'm just going to highlight it, read Colossians 1, and then we're going to go on to the next page and then come back around at the end to this uh, bottom of the front page. How is discipleship accomplished? Let's look at Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now, what I want you to notice are buzzwords here about... Um, the minister, the ministry, the church, the service, the saints, um, and what's being accomplished. Now I rejoice in my suffering for you, for your sake. What? Who's you? Well, that's the church at Colossae. Uh, so Paul, suffering for your sake and my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, who's him? Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, here's the, here's the kicker, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is the pursuit of holiness or discipleship. And Paul says in verse 29, For this I toil, for the, for the increase in maturity in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that would be God's energy, that he has powerfully worked within me. And so we made highlight, we highlighted... On the bottom of the first page, how is discipleship accomplished? It's accomplished by the revelation of the Word of God through the ministers of Christ in the church. Now, you can put in parentheses, not the physical location but the church, the people who happen to meet at a physical location, typically. Now, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Let's flip over. 
What does, so this is basically the how we do, we're going to do the rest of this. What does discipleship look like in Scripture? Pretty long, uh, pretty long thing here. And then how are we going to unfold that at Ozarks Bible Church to conclude at the end? So what does discipleship look like in Scripture? So there's, let's see, how many main headings here? Following, learning, disciplining. And that's it, yeah. Four main headings. There's crucifying under there. Yeah, and crucifying, sorry. Stacked pages. So let's think about following. Now, if you remember, I, I, I sort of gave a distinction between following and imitating because following is really the gospel language Jesus says. Once we get into the epistles, that, that word just basically falls off. And the word imitate takes its place. Um, following Luke uses or Luke uses the word uh, or or illustrates it. It's in Luke nine twenty three. It's also in Matthew. It's also in Mark, I believe. We know the passage well. Uh, Jesus says, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily." And follow me. So, first thought here. Where do we follow Jesus? So we're thinking about actually physical location. Where do we follow Jesus? First and foremost, number one, to God. Right? He's the way. He's the way. He's the only way to the Father. Uh, we can think about it in Matthew 7 when Jesus speaks about – you don't have to turn there. But when Jesus speaks about entering in a gate and then walking down a way or a path, right? We follow. That's the way to the Lord. It's the way to justification, sanctification, and righteousness – or in glorification. So that's number one. We follow Jesus to God. We follow Jesus, number two, to the cross. Now, this is going to unfold all the way throughout, but this is telling us something. We follow Jesus to the cross because as we are in him, our old self dies. Our, our, way of, our sinful way of life is crucified, Romans 6. It's crucified and buried. And Jesus says the only way to follow him is by carrying that cross. Go ahead. My note here is a good uh, description. The cross is not merely a difficult life circumstance to be endured. Those who witnessed Roman, Roman crucifixions knew that to take up the cross meant to renounce selfish ambition and all right to control one's own destiny. Is death to a whole way of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, death. It's a symbol of death. Uh, you know, Peter followed him literally to a cross, and Peter was hung on a cross. We are called to die to self spiritually. Uh, okay, here's number three and number four of where we follow Jesus. These might not be so obvious, but when we think about the disciples actually following Jesus... They followed him to sinners. 
to sinners, S-I-N-N-E-R-S. Right? We think about um, Jesus eating at the table with sinners in Matthew 10 with Matthew and Matthew's tax collecting buddies. We see multiple occasions where Jesus finds himself in the company of sinners intentionally, on purpose. Kind of a, going back to the thought that we had last last Wednesday night, like how how we how we do this. Well, it's not avoiding sinners per se. Um, that's not the Christian way. Is to avoid the sinners. Because what Paul say to the church at Corinth? If you were to avoid sinners in this world, what would you have to do? You'd have to go out of this world, right? But we also understand that. Jesus' path to sinners was intentional for this for their eternal good and the glory of God, not to go just have some fun with sinners because that's what he was accused of. But we also understand that Jesus takes himself to fellow disciples. He is engaged with disciples. He's not just hanging around with sinners. But he's also engaged with fellow believers around it. So we, we, we see this and understand that we are to find fellowship with other Christians. Love our brothers and sisters. Okay, so that's following. Second heading, learning. Now, learning is under... So following is going the way. I, I would say learning is understanding the way. Because if you if you think about Jesus' ministry, he's not just going, but he's also always teaching. And the the, the definition of disciple is to be a learner. Uh, so the first one of the these aren't in particular order, but the first thing that I have number one, what are we learning? The way we walk. And in Bible, in Bible language, walking, it means what? Living. Yeah. Walking with the Lord. You think about Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. That is, that is teaching us how we are to walk, how we are to follow Christ. Not so much about where we're going, but how we go. Think about the, the 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 beatitudes. You know, it's not a it's not a direction, but um, who 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 you are. How we walk affects the outcome of the of the path we're on, or I should say, determines the outcome of the path. I, and what I had in mind was Matthew seven. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it, uh, enter by it, are many. So, the wide path is a path of destruction. The narrow is the narrow is a hard path, and so carrying a cross is a hard path, and that path leads to life. Number two in learning, understanding the kingdom to which we belong. So it's not like God or Jesus just says, oh, the kingdom of heaven is near. 
and then never talks about it. He spends tons of time explaining, discussing, revealing about the kingdom. If we're, we're I don't want to, I don't want to put a time frame on it. Weeks, months away from Matthew 13. I'm not really sure. Uh, which is Matthew 13 is the parables of the kingdom. I, I'm super excited about getting to that. The uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he goes and he gives. He teaches what he teaches about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and we know. Well, I don't want to spoil Matthew 13. We'll get there. Uh, number three, the third thing we're learning. Um, who are citizens of the kingdom? Uh, I didn't really have a good way of writing this one, but basically, how do you get in and who gets kicked out? And basically, what my thoughts were, if you look at Matthew 8, 10, and 11, 8, 9, 10, and 11, you really see a declaration of come into the kingdom. An invitation to the kingdom of God. Uh, and that's you know that's what we're talking about in Matthew 11 and especially in this section of redemption but when you get towards the end of Matthew Matthew 20 21 22 23 and 24 he's also talking about and and it starts in before all that he starts talking about who's being almost removed from the kingdom in Matthew 20 through 24. It begins with John. John's teaching about the kingdom in Matthew 3 when he talks to the Pharisees and he calls them a you den, den of vipers who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And from that moment on, we see that uh, there's judgment being declared to the Pharisees and ultimately through Israel if they do not turn and repent. Remember in Matthew 8, Jesus tells uh, the Pharisees that uh, there are going to be people come from the nations to come sit at the table in the kingdom, and you will not have your place there. Right? And then Matthew 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24, you've got uh, – well, let's look at them. You can just see the titles. Um, laborers in the vineyard. So there he's pressing the, 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 the Jews that – just because you were here first doesn't mean you get the best wage. So he's kind of, he's prepping them in that scenario. We see in Matthew 21 his entrance into um, into Jerusalem, and the Pharisees are uh, having a, a a fit about what's going on there. He cleanses the temple. Um, he curses the fig tree, which is a direct judgment upon Israel. It's a parable of the judgment upon Israel that is to come. Um, Matthew 22, you've got the parable of the wedding feast. That really is a big, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, indictment on the Israelites, the Jews, for their not coming to the invitation to come into the kingdom. And so he's going to take that invitation to the, to the nations, to the Gentiles. Uh, there's a couple more here. Um, well, he laments over Jerusalem, Matthew 23. The woes in Matthew 23. Uh, the, and then Matthew 24, the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And so we see this sort of how you come in, but we also see the warnings and the woes of those who are might be removed or found, find themselves outside of the kingdom. 
Number four in learning. Make some good time. Not bad. Number four in learning is knowing the king. As I wrote that, my mind first went through to John and the great I am's. Of course, all the, the you've got John who teaches differently about Jesus than all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're very similar. But take notice. I'll give you. A, I'll give you a um, homework assignment. Go and read Math, the last few verses of Matthew 11, which we're going to be teaching on this Sunday morning. And if you're familiar with John. Go and see if you can find the most John-like statement in that passage. See if you see any overlap. Some people won't even attribute this passage in Matthew 11 and think it's added in because it sounds so much like John's gospel. So from Matthew 11, 24, or 25 through the end of the chapter, 29, I think. And with correlations to John? I'm not going to tell you. The whole book. Well, it's it, once you see it, you're like, oh, that's John. That's just a little fun homework assignment. Okay, so knowing the King, that's all throughout the Gospels, of course, and ultimately, that's eternal life, right? So that gets us to our next heading: uh, discipling, or I'm sorry, disciplining. Disciplining. Now, this one's uh, that that heading's hard to consider because I and you'll I'll, you'll see it here in a minute. I'm convinced that discipleship is discipline. Discipline is discipleship, and we'll 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 see that here in a second. But when I when I use the word discipline, I mean it in that sense that it is. Um, Shaping, forming, and you'll see. Um, see what I mean. Number one, the yoke of Christ. I don't know if I've got that written out or not. Let me see. Number one in, in disciplining is the yoke of Christ. Yeah. Okay, the yoke of Christ, which is the passage for this coming Sunday, actually, uh, Matthew 11, 29, and 30. Uh, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You know, to take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. Uh, my yoke is light. We use that to think about, oh, freedom. But what does he tell us to do? Put on a yoke, right? So you see how someone who's disciplined or being disciplined isn't autonomous and free. But there is restraint, good restraint, guiding. Uh, uh, the yoke is to keep the to keep the oxen on uh, uh, together and uh, going where it needs to go. And so Jesus says, "Put my yoke on. Be controlled by me. Be disciplined by me." Um, a, a, a subheading of this could just simply be submission. Submission, right? Because it he doesn't it, it it isn't the sense of I'm gonna put my yoke on you. It's take my yoke, right? Submit to me. Uh, and it, but then you again, this is a, a theme throughout discipleship and following Christ. It's there's a burden. 
There is weight. It's not weightless. It's light, but not weightless. And why is it light? Because Christ has already bore the full burden. Now he's just saying, do as I do. Carry a cross like Christ carried. No promise of weightlessness, but there is a promise of it being light. Okay, so a little fun going to number two. Now, I'm going to see – if you look – if if you've got the old page from last week, I, I made a mess up. Look at number two and number three under disciplining. And I want you all to tell me why I messed up on two and three. See if you can figure it out. Pay, pay attention to the main heading there, not necessarily the verses. No, dis, no, back where we were, disciplining, number two and number three. Endurance in Christ and abiding and pruning by Christ. Okay. If I said endure in Christ and abide in Christ, could you tell me the difference? They're the same thing. <laughs> They're the same thing. So take um, – we were in Matthew 10 a while back, and there's a verse in there that says uh, those who endure will be saved, right? Then think about John 15, and I've got it right here. Uh, John uh, 15, the, the vine and the branch passage, Jesus says, abide in me. Okay? That, that Greek word abide is part of the compound word that makes up the word endure. Uh, it's basically the same concept. One is being in and then the other one is continuing in. They're really the same thing. You're in Christ, but then you're staying in Christ. You're abiding. You're enduring and not leaving. Take it's like it's like taking up root in a house or planting. Like we're going to plant roots here and stay. That's abiding, but you're also enduring. So they're very close and very similar. So if you've got a new if you've got a new paper and you don't really understand what I'm talking about, I just changed it and put abiding and endurance in Christ. And the thing is, we could go through tons of verses. To look at this, I mentioned the John 15 already. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Um, abide in me and I in you. Uh, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch. So there's the enduring endurance of the abiding. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. Probably one of the best illustrations is John 8. If you want to look at John 8, <clears throat> it's a sad story, but it 
it's just one of those where it just even though it humiliates and shows the ugliness of unbelief, but it elevates Christ so much. You know, 8.31, you know the verse, so Jesus said to the Jews who, who had believed, now, now pay attention there, he said to the Jews who had believed him, okay, they believed. And he says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Does anyone not say abide? I'm curious. Does it say remain or endure or no? Everybody's continue. Uh, yeah. So if you abide, remain, continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Put that phrase in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to it again. But then just let me tell you what happens. He goes and starts saying some hard things. And then they start not believing anymore. Uh, They actually, he goes, they go on to say, uh, say things, Jesus would say to those people who had just believed what he had said. He calls that he says this to him in verse 44. You have are you of you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desire, your the devil's desire. And then he would then go on to say to these people who who believed or no, they did he didn't say to them. They went to him and were about to throw stones at him from the things he was saying. And the things that he said was, before Abraham was, I am. So they did not abide in his word. His word actually caused them fury and anger to the point that they were ready to stone him. They were not continuing in their belief in his word. But you have to understand, whoever endures to the end will be saved. It is non-negotiable. When Jesus presses you with the truth, you must continue. You must abide. You must remain. Or we think about it at the beginning of Matthew 11. You must not stumble and fall over him or his words. Uh, Hebrews 10, 32 and 39. We won't go there, but such another great passage of remaining, abiding, and continuing. And that is in the midst of when people press you because you follow Jesus. So you might quit You might quit following because of what Jesus says, or you might quit following because of what other people are saying about you. And then in John 15 again, if you dis- disconnect, if you quit abiding, ultimately you're pulling the plug and you die. You no longer remain. You no longer have life. Abide in his words. The truth sets us free. Gives life. This is a big disconnect in the Bible Belt. This is a big problem in our area. People want to say they believe, but yet have no fruit of abiding. Which means... They're not in pursuit of discipleship or holiness. And we, what, one thing we have to understand that t- 
to be a disciple is to pursue Christ's likeness and holiness. You cannot just say, I believe, like they did in John 8, and then not bear fruit. Because he says, if you abide in me, uh, and then he says, if, if you abide in, in, and do not bear fruit, you will be cut away and thrown into the fire. Growth is necessary. Number three, I'm getting ahead of myself. Bearing fruit in Christ. There it is. I think one passage we can consider. Here, I want I want you to reconsider this passage. Let's just look at it. It's just one verse. Galatians 2.20. We're talking about bearing fruit in Christ. Galatians 2.20 tells us why that happens. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You've got to think about that. You're not just, hey, I believe. But for Jesus' disciples, those who believe... Jesus Christ lives in them. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you say you have faith in the Son of God, you live in newness of life as Christ lives in you. Very Romans 6 type language. Crucified in Christ, raised to walk in a newness of life. Why? Because Christ dwells in you. Just meditate on it for a second. God, who put on flesh, who lived a righteous life, who died a horrible sacrificial death, was buried rose from the dead, not just resuscitated, but died and raised to never die again, sought you to dwell in you. How can we be ashamed of that? How could we set that aside and say, it affects me not? Wow. Okay. So... We bear fruit because Christ dwells in us. That's why we bear fruit. Uh, That fruit obviously looks like the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of Christ. Because if you look, it's actually a page over or two. Galatians 5. If you look at starting at 16... Galatians 5.16 starts, but I say, walk. What's that word for? How you live. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. But I want to show you the bookends here. So we know how this passage works out. 
He goes on and tells us to, to keep away from the, from the desires of the flesh. He lists out the works of the flesh. Then he goes and lists out the fruit of the Spirit. But then he says at the end, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So you start, walk by the Spirit. How can you walk by the Spirit? Because you belong to Christ. You have, go back to Galatians 2, not only do you walk, belong to Christ Jesus, who was crucified, you belong to Christ Jesus and have been crucified along with Him. And now He lives in you. His Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, which churns out fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So, crucifixion, self-denial, truth, learning, following, fruit-bearing, it just all is together. Can't have one without the other. Number four on the disciplining this one, again, that's kind of a bad heading, but correction, which is the idea of discipline, correction by, see, I could have gone different ways here. I could have said by God, but I wanted to emphasize by the body of Christ, which is the body of God, right? Christ the head, the church is the body of of Christ. So God God has given us a system a, a, a process to follow to discipline one another for the sake of discipleship and holiness. Okay? Cuz we know that God the Father disciplines those whom he what? Loves. Loves. And if he didn't, we would be what? Modern English version. Illegitimate children. Right? God designed the church through Jesus' words and through the epistles of performing that discipline within this place, with, with among these people. And that's why I'm really pressing us to know that that how discipleship takes place is in the revealed word of God through the ministers of God in the church of God is because that's how God has brought it to us and wants us to operate it. If we try to get outside of that, and not that it doesn't trickle outside of that, but if we try to do it outside of that and not with it coming in and then flowing out, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to get it big time wrong. And that's why... You know, we we might get have time to touch back on that front side, but here's the correction that's offered by the body. Formative number one, formative discipline. Now, I, I'm I'll just have you write these down. We won't go look at them, and if you know them, tell me. Formative discipline would be discipline that's done. Uh, I. It's apart from consequences, I guess we could say. It's, it's, it's teaching. 
teaching is a type of formative. Notice it's form, shaping. So preaching and teaching is actually a form of discipline. You bringing yourself to church Sunday morning and Wednesday evening is you disciplining your soul as you're ready to take the Word of God and be formed by it. Okay, Just like when I've—I'm pretty sure I've had this conversation with almost everybody here, or you've heard me say it. Just like when your child is in the, in the toddler stage and you teach them, don't touch the stove. It's hot. That's formative discipline. Okay? You're just informing in order to form their minds. Now, the second one, well, let me back up. So not only is preaching and teaching formative discipline, but God has designed your relationships to also be formative Take care, brothers, lest there be one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart. Who's to take care of one another? The brothers, the church, the fellowship of the saints. Watch out for one another. There's a, is that Thessalonians where it talks about doing that? Um, And someone is in sin. Anyway, formative discipline is forming uh, apart from consequence. Now, corrective discipline, your little one goes and starts to touch the stove. What do you do? You smack the back of that hand. You're correcting with consequence. But you're still disciplining. That they don't touch the stove. So, oh, I didn't give you the verses for formative. I'm sorry. Proverbs 27, 17. Anybody know which one that one is? Iron sharpens iron. Men's meeting. Formative discipline. Titus 2, 1 through 10. Elderly women teach the younger women. Younger men do this. Women's fellowship. See, those things are for the sake of discipleship. We'll talk more about that in a second. So corrective discipline. What's the go-to verse there? Matthew 18, right? If your brother sins against you, we won't have to go there. We've gone through it. If your brother sins against you, go to him. If he does not listen to you, or if he listens to you, he repents. You've gained you've gained your brother back, and then the process. If he doesn't hear you, take uh, two or three, uh, and then if he doesn't hear that, tell it to the church. Therefore, and then treat him like a tax collector and uh, a gentile. Uh, uh, the other issues all throughout the uh, the epistles, especially First and Second Corinthians, as well as the pastoral epistles of actually removing someone from the table or from the gathering for the sake of discipline. Not for the sake of, like excommunication isn't for the sake of, you're not allowed to come hang out with us anymore. It's, you're not allowed to partake with us anymore until you repent of your sin. And then when you do, 
we are ready to share the bread and the cup with you. Paul says, turn them over to Satan. That's what that is. That's what that is. Without getting into any details, I saw it happen firsthand a while back. I heard somebody get called out in the most biblical sense by name on a Sunday morning. And at that very moment, if there's any reason to have live broadcasted sermons, at that very moment, that person repented. And it was like, that's what God wanted. It was beautiful. So that's correction within the body from the Lord. Finally, um, crucifying. Of course, we've already quoted in Luke 9, 23. This is a way of life. As Justin said in his note, it's carrying a cross isn't about, oh, the in-laws are coming for Christmas. I'm going to bear the cross and work it out. I want to be a good Christian. No, no. Carrying your cross is loving your in-laws with the love of Christ when they come and visit. Even if they run you over up and down for the three days that they're there. Being like Christ is putting down your self-interest, your flesh desires and wants. Because all of those are sin. Self-denial, very simple and obvious, right? Uh, what is it? I didn't write it down. Mark 10, 40-something. Uh, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. You can't be a Christian and ignore self-denial. It's impossible. Number two, costly. Of course it's costly. Self-denial is giving up your life. Giving up your life. Jesus even speaks in, these, in his teachings, you must count the cost before you follow me. Because if you turn back, you're not worthy of me. There's that what? What word can we put there? Endurance, abiding, containing, continuing, remaining, right? Some people, even it even costs their family. If you love father, mother, brother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Now, he doesn't say, he's not saying you must leave your family and follow me. He's saying be prepared to give up everything if need be. Opposition, again, goes without saying. I think, it, what was it? Is it in Matthew 10 we looked at when it said uh, the, the student, the, the disciple, isn't above his master, the teacher? Sorry, uh, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house 
If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? All of those three, self-denial, costly, and opposition, really tie in together. Now finally, we'll conclude. Discipleship at Ozarks Bible Church. First heading, non-negotiable. We are not a church if we're not making disciples. And I don't mean that in an evangelistic way only. I mean if we're not being made disciples. If, what is, the, what is, the, what is the, the command in the Great Commission? Teaching, uh, or teaching all, teach, uh, baptize all, uh, teaching all that I observed. I can't say it. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So at what point are we going to say, I think I got it. See, our coming together, our fellowship, our all the things that we do is a continuation of the great... It's continuing to fulfill the Great Commission with around us. We're still being built up as disciples. We're always going to be needing to learn to observe all that Jesus has commanded. So we can't call ourselves a church if we're not uh, pursuing discipleship, if we're not pursuing Christ-likeness, if we're not pursuing holiness. We cannot call your, ourselves Christians if we're not following, learning, and imitating Christ. Those two things are obvious. Now I'll say this, and this will be kind of odd, but it needs to be true. We want to be a church that is uncomfortable for a nominal Christian who cares not to be like Christ. Right? It should feel weird and uncomfortable if someone's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm going to hang out here and just watch. We, it doesn't, that goes against what it means to be a saint, a holy one, separated from the world, called out to holiness and blamelessness in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean we berate or have give problems to immature Christians. We do it in a way that says come and follow, right? This is the part of discipleship where we go and help others be disciples. You learn from your master and then you go and you teach others likewise. That's the process of making disciples. Uh, so number one, non-negotiable for discipleship at Ozarks Bible Church. Number two, we have to strive for the basics. This isn't an elaborate thing. This is Christian basics. I don't mean Hebrews 6 uh, elementary doctrines. I mean let's do the biblical and simple things. Let's pursue the biblical and simple things with all that we are and have. And let's set up, let's set ourselves up for that, not for entertainment, child care, or to be like a country club. Not that we have any of those problems, but that can be a tendency for most churches. And number three, the structure. The structure. Uh, I stole this from a book. The structure of our discipleship is like a trellis and a vine. 
a trellis, and a vine. So why do you build a trellis for your tomato planters? Right. So you built, you set up the structure so that the vine can grow up it on its own. Right. That to me, that is the best structure for a church when it comes to discipleship. Basic, simple trellis so that natural growth can take place. That's why we will never be a church having so many things and doing so many different events and so many different programs and so many this, so many that. Because that hinders true, simple growth. Right? We want to just build a trellis, trust the word, and grow. The simple gathering of the saints is the the most simple trellis. The Sunday morning service. Our Wednesday evening gathering. And then based on Sunday school classes, men's meeting, women's fellowship, even breakfast at church cleanup. That's a pretty basic. But it's all built. That trellis is built on Christ and his word. Right? So then that structure goes. The trellis... Is not just built on Christ. We kind of go back to the whole thing. The elder and pastor oversight and leadership is also in that trellis. Right? It's got to be. Um, Preaching, teaching, providing opportunities, showing what this looks like. That's why Timothy is told by Paul, "Keep keep a watch on your teaching and yourself. Right, if I am up here teaching, but then I you see me living a life opposite of this, I'm just undermining the trellis. I'm just hindering growth. Uh, the vine congregation uh, is in submission and participation on the trellis. Discipleship happens, fellowship and relationships form, and the church functions as Christ has designed it. I think I think it could be a pretty simple, basic idea of discipleship we can get behind and pursue moving forward. Right? Any thoughts or questions? I think, you know, work any kinks out.